Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, I talked to Nicole Egan, Chief Executive of Darktrace, a company that uses artificial intelligence to identify and respond to cyber threats. This week, we hear from the co-founder of a global news and networking website for governments. We did a lot of research on how policy is made, and it's insane. People will often, under tight time pressure, phone a friend or have an intern Googling something. So what we're doing is aggregating all the most interesting and important developments to create a one-stop shop for policy. That was Robin Scott, founder of Apolitical, a website that shares knowledge and best practice among the world's top civil servants. Welcome, Robin. Can you tell us what Apolitical does? Well, thank you for having me. And just a little bit of context. So directly before starting Apolitical, I had worked a lot in maximum security prisons in South Africa. I co-founded an organization that teaches income generation skills and coding skills to prisoners. And one of the deeply disturbing pieces of working in prisons is that you realize so many people are there not only because of failures in control and character, but because of failures in policy mental health policy failures, education policy failures, early childhood development, and so on. So I had got super frustrated with working downstream of problems. And I got attracted to government by their potential to work upstream, dealing with causes and not consequences, and on something that was super high leverage. And when we started looking at the government space, along with my co-founder, whose background is actually in policy and government, mine is more in tech and social entrepreneurship, We were struck by two things that seemed crazy. Part one was that, you know, in a world where a traveler can find out about lumps in a mattress on the other side of the world, a public servant can't quickly find out about known lumps in a policy. When the stakes are so high, when these cost millions of dollars, when they can affect millions of people. And this is in a world where platforms have disrupted almost every other sector. And at a time when more and more policy solutions are underpinned by technologies, which means they're more shareable across borders. So we wanted to fix that huge inefficiency. The other thing that seemed crazy was that we constantly want government to innovate more. We say we need better services for citizens, etc. But we look for government's failures. We look for where mistakes were made. And that creates no space to take risks. And if you compare it to the private sector, where we're so great at celebrating entrepreneurs, you don't get that in government. Government is instead a faceless bureaucracy where there's very little incentive to try new stuff. So without being panglossian about it, we know there are lots of problems in government. We wanted to show that public servants are heroes too, and policy can be sexy. I have an American co-founder who constantly tells me it's okay to say heroes, (laughs) which I feel awkward about. So those were the pillars on which we created the platform, which is a digital platform that allows policymakers anywhere in the world to exchange the best ideas, to find what's working and to connect to people behind them and ultimately to partners who can help implement those ideas. And you've had an extraordinary varied upbringing and grown up and worked around the world. Can you tell us a bit about your background? Sure. So I was born in Britain, but spent most of my childhood in Botswana a little bit in New Zealand, but then Botswana, in the middle of the bush, 200 kilometers from the nearest store with a father who was a flying doctor. And we were there at a time when Botswana was, on the one hand, thriving as a country. It's one of the most successful democracies in Africa. 
but was beset by the AIDS epidemic, which for a time was the worst in the world in Botswana. So I have always been really interested in big, complex social environmental problems, how they interact with one another, but also been optimistic about government as a force for good and companies as a force for good interacting with government in the right way. Just one other thing on my background, which has influenced my work a lot today, is that um, I was homeschooled until I was 15. And I think that's incredibly helpful when you want to be an entrepreneur, because a lot of being an entrepreneur is saying, when people tell you you're crazy, I'm going to do it anyway. And there's something about being an outsider and being homeschooled that makes you okay with that. So when we were starting Apolitical two years ago, so many people told us it wouldn't work. Innovators in government, they'd say there are no innovators in government. How can you possibly do this? So I am very grateful for my background in that sense. That's fascinating. I was reading a book by an author called Melissa Schilling, who wrote a book called Quirky, where she studied various breakthrough innovators, Elon Musk, Marie Curie, Benjamin Franklin, and so on. And one of the defining characteristics was that they had a real sense of separateness. They thought very differently from other people, and that that's a great asset in an entrepreneur avoiding the group think of what everyone else is thinking. And I wonder whether your kind of homeschooling experience set you up for that. I think so. When people say that can't be done or that's way too difficult, I generally take it as encouragement that there must be something interesting there. I mean, my mother set out to homeschool us, but really she didn't. It was extremely laissez-faire. She read us a lot of books and let us experiment. And we dissected animals to learn about biology. So it was very much about pursuing areas of interest. And I think you need that with entrepreneurship too, because you need to get really interested in the problem you're solving and deeply understand it from all angles. Now, a lot of people in the tech world would largely see government as part of the problem rather than the solution. Is that right, do you think? And what role can government play? Well, first of all, it's in some cases right and in some cases wrong. And one of the problems with this debate is it's blunt and it doesn't recognise the fact that there are places for government and there are places where it should step away. Where do you think are the places for government? One of the angles or approaches I find useful to think it through is government as a platform. So government doing the minimal amount of work to create the infrastructure on which the private sector and civil society can flourish. So historically, right from the beginning, it's been the platform of the rule of law, and we moved to roads and highways, which evidently government is better placed to provide. And I think in today's world, you're seeing that around digital infrastructure in a big way. One of the interesting areas, if you look at the platform concept that I think is neglected, is the trust part of the platform. So we think about platforms very much in terms of services and infrastructure. But if government isn't a trusted player, you don't get the innovation that we need from any other sector. And one of the things about our work that makes us really excited is the ability by showing what is working to help rebuild and build people's trust in government, which is so essential for everything else to work. I'd like to understand a bit more about exactly what you do at Apolitical. Can you give us an example of how people around the world are using your platform to inform governmental policy? So it's used primarily in two ways. One is to stay ahead of what's going on in your space. I mean, all problems are getting more and more complex, more fast moving and more integrated with other issues. So keeping abreast of things like AI automation and so forth is super difficult. 
Likewise, dealing with, say, a new refugee crisis where you haven't faced that before requires new skills. So in that sense, it's an educational resource. It's an education, staying ahead of stuff, an educational Mm. resource. The other is I have a specific policy problem I'm trying to solve. And right now, policy ideas are super fragmented. They sit in databases, some of them in small networks. We did a lot of research on how policy is made, and it's insane. People will, often under tight time pressure, phone a friend or have an intern Googling something. So what we're doing is aggregating all the most interesting and important developments to create a one-stop shop for policy. I mean, just to give some specific examples, a question we get regularly, a search that you see a lot of is autonomous vehicle regulation, because a lot of countries and cities are um, dealing with that. How to digitize my department, put stuff in the cloud. Often there's a lot of risk aversion around that. And what public servants want is to be able to say, look, these five countries have done it. And it hasn't been super risky. And your job is not on the line if you sign this off. So often it's used as a way to get something through and build a business case for policy. Then we're also seeing some quite unexpected use cases. One of the top searches on the platform is loneliness. Because all over the developed world, loneliness and ageing is becoming a massive problem. Japan has some of the best solutions on loneliness. They're looking at moving groups of older people into different neighbourhoods that allow them to interact more. Then we've also seen a lot of interest around indigenous populations. So in Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the US, these communities often suffer related and very specific problems around, for example, drug use or difficulty getting into work. And there's been some sharing and exchange around that. And how many civil servants or other people are using your site at the moment? The site is now used by tens of thousands of policymakers a month. Um, how many countries? From 120 countries. That's um, pretty much all of them. There are a few notable exceptions. Mm. I don't think we have anyone from Russia yet. And we launched it in June last year. The type of policymakers that use us, we have, have pretty senior people on it. So ministers, mayors and their teams. And then we have a lot of innovators. So we have a group for innovation departments and labs. And I think it's now over 180 different departments in 40 or so different countries. And really excitingly, it's not just the usual suspects. We have innovation labs from Colombia, from Egypt, from a bunch of other emerging market countries as well. And when you say that you're a platform, are you providing a platform for private sector companies as well to service the government around the world? Are they contributing ideas, pitching business propositions or... What is their aim? So ultimately, yes. Right now, we have been very careful about bringing the private sector in. One of the things that's crucial to the success of apolitical, especially given our name, is to seem to be and to substantially be unbiased and neutral and bringing the best ideas to policymakers. So what we don't want to do is just make sure that those who have the most money can. However, one of the things we've realized in talking to hundreds of policymakers around the world is they really need better connections to the private sector. And if you take an industry like GovTech, which is worth around $400 billion a year right now, and that's rapidly growing as more and more technology penetrates government, you've got this very unfortunate situation where it's dominated largely by big corporations who have a lot of access, who have lobbying teams, and sometimes do great work. But often the best products and services are offered by small to medium-sized businesses. And those businesses have almost no channels through to government. So we see the platform as a really exciting opportunity over the medium to long term of democratizing access to procurement and bringing in smaller players, 
connecting them with government decision makers at the problem solving end, because right now small companies get squeezed out if they have to tender at the same level as larger companies. Can you give us some examples of where that's working best? Well, right now we don't have private sector companies on the platform. But to give you a few examples, policymakers are, for example, grappling with air pollution. It's a big thing in many cities. And there are a lot of cool innovations coming out of smaller companies around that. There's a lot in e-health. Participatory budgeting, which has become a massive thing now, originally started in Brazil, but spread very widely. A lot of startups are offering the best platforms for that. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. How is technology changing politics, do you think? Well, there's some cool direct applications of tech to politics. So an obvious one is platforms that are allowing unknown candidates to raise funds more easily. You've got online voting, which is making access to voting much easier. Estonia has been the leader in this, as it is in many digital spaces. But then I actually think the more interesting way that tech is influencing politics is indirectly through policy, because this comes back to the trust issue. And what we're seeing now with citizen engagement technologies is, A, the voice of citizens is more able to be heard. But B, if you know that your government is listening and listening to specific concerns and acting on those in real time or close to real time, which you see particularly at the city level where there's more nimbleness, you start to believe again in government. And one of the big problems besetting politics is lack of participation, right? So just feeling your government as being closer encourages people then to vote and participate. And what's happening in citizen engagement is just amazing right now. I mean, in Reykjavik... More than 50% of the population have participated in an online platform shaping policies. Those have led to millions of dollars being spent on things like improving homeless care, increasing rides for kids, kids at school. There's a similar platform. Actually, the same platform has been used in Estonia, and that has led to changes around political candidates receiving illicit donations and making the thresholds for starting political parties lower. I visited Code for America last year, uh, based in San Francisco, and are trying to kind of reinvent government services. And one of the things they were arguing is that the generation of people who are entering the voting age have all been acclimatized to using digital products. They are absolutely used to using booking restaurant tables, taxis via their apps, and then they come across the government and hit a kind of brick wall. You've got to do things either by filling out forms or incredibly cumbersome online forms as well. How do you think government services can best be invented, reinvented for this digital age? Well, it's interesting because this is in some ways the, the least glamorous side of government innovation. We like the citizen engagement, the sensors, the predictive analytics, but Perhaps the most powerful thing that many governments can do is just to make services more streamlined and more like consumer tech. I mean, a lot of it is there. 
to mention Estonia again, but they've digitized 99% of public services that can be digitized. Those are available 24-7. You can not only pay your taxes in five minutes, but they now have this e-residency program. As a non-resident, you can set up a bank account without actually going into the bank. So there's a wealth of best practice. A lot of it also depends on coming back to this working with the right private sector providers. Startups and smaller companies are often much better placed to implement these technologies. A lot of the bad government tech we see is put in place by very large companies who just haven't made it consumer-centric. So looking at what's working, listening more to citizens, having more agile processes, all of those are best practices that just need to be adopted. And critical, obviously, to that happening is getting more exchange between government and the private sector. One of the things you see again and again with the most disruptive, innovative people in government is they have come from elsewhere. They've had experience from elsewhere and they will come in and say, this rule is insane. I'm just not following it. And they'll find a way around and they'll do something extraordinary. There's a, another benefit to that exchange, which actually goes the other way. We are very keen in the private sector to preach to government about how it could do so many things differently. And I have lost count of the number of senior private sector executives and entrepreneurs who've gone into government and said, I had no idea how hard it was having all these stakeholders, having such a responsibility to the taxpayer, etc. So that exchange, which organizations like Code for America have pioneered is critical. And you also have government as an innovator in its own right or a facilitator of innovation. And in the US, you clearly have organizations like DARPA in the defense industry, the National Institute of Health, which have been absolutely instrumental in financing all kinds of breakthrough innovation. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental research, which is increasingly being more written about that government works on is critical. I mean, you look at the clean energy technologies, the technology and iPhones, etc., Government has to support those. They're too risky for venture capital. So that has been and remains super important. The other interesting area I think government can work at now is around AI and the ethics of it. Canada has actually done an interesting open sourcing of its AI ethics framework. So they put out a paper and allowed any citizen to comment on it and tried to create a discussion around that. That's something the private sector can't do on its own with the kind of current arms race to be the leader in AI. So, and that, that's becoming more and more critical. And I think that represents one of the most interesting trends in tech and government right now, that whether you love government or hate it, or somewhere in between, people in technology realize that they have to interact in some way with government, whether it's because the sharing economy is so often bumping up against cities or because technology is pushing regulators to be more interested and more nimble. I'm sure this varies enormously, but is it possible to generalise about whether most of the civil servants you deal with view technology as a great enabling force, or do they see it mostly as a threat? It is impossible to generalise. I think you have the more old-fashioned sceptics who are wary and also you know, a lot of technology in government has been overhyped. I talked to someone in quite a senior role who said, I'm going to punch the next person who tells me blockchain is the solution to something in government. There are actually some cool applications, but it's also been super hyped. So I think there's some legitimate scepticism of tech as a panacea. But back to the point about younger people, we now have millennials getting into positions of power in government and their network and digital natives, and they see technology as a necessity. I'd like to return to Botswana, which you know so well. 
Could you paint us a vision of how you think apolitical can help Botswana develop in beneficial ways? Well, one of the biggest, most frequently asked questions we get is around work and inequality. Every government, wealthy or poor, everywhere in the world is dealing with that, with the changing nature of work, with migration, with urbanisation, etc. And Botswana is no different. Botswana is very dependent historically on diamonds, cattle and tourism, so it's a very undiversified economy. So sharing best practice around helping entrepreneurial sectors develop, small business and so forth, that's one. There's a lot around health and development as well. In general, one of the most exciting things to me about working on a platform that is truly global is the benefits to emerging markets, but it's not benefits in a classic the rich countries will tell the poorer countries what to do. What we're seeing, which is fascinating, is in the same way that in technology we've seen mobile phones leapfrog infrastructure in emerging markets and solar grids, etc. We're seeing that in policy, where the infrastructure doesn't yet exist. Sometimes new policies are coming out that would never be done in more developed countries where there's more infrastructure. So we're excited both about providing better ideas to emerging market policymakers but also allowing them to showcase their ideas. And is that true in healthcare in particular in Africa? I can't say I've seen it in particular in healthcare. I mean, in violence prevention, some of the most innovative work has come out of poorer countries. Some of what South American cities have done in particular is astonishing around violence prevention, looking at it as a public health issue, as well as drawing on big data sets to see where violence crops up and then restructuring neighbourhoods. Medellin in Colombia was at one time the most violent city in the world, and it's now come way down. It's now one of the lauded innovators. And a lot of that has been through a very comprehensive approach to violence. Just another example, which I find completely beguiling and inspiring, in Kenya, a program has been started by an NGO, but working with government and schools. And a lot of the most interesting work we're seeing are innovative public-private partnerships. And this NGO teaches self-defense to girls. It's rape prevention. And they have six, I think it's six classes taught in schools. So super low cost, low volume intervention, which has reduced rape by around 50% on their reporting. And they also teach consent to boys as part of that. And what's been so interesting is we covered that story, which then went viral, was made into a video, and it ultimately reached more than 30 million people around the world saying, why don't we have this here? Why don't we have this Kenyan innovation in our country? And this is including in countries like America. Finally, tell me about the business model for Apolitical. So in the long run, we'll have subscriptions. We will always have a free version for the public sector. We always want anyone in policymaking to be able to use it. We will have subscriptions for the private sector where you as a provider can say, here's my product and service. This is the problem we solve. But importantly, that will always be done in a way where there's transparency. So public servants can critique anything a private sector provider is stating. And there isn't that transparency now. We'll also have some premium services for government that want additional collaboration features and internal features, for example. Right now, we're backed by impact investors and by some EU grant funding. Our revenue comes from government departments and foundations who care about particular issues and who underwrite us to develop the global communities and knowledge base on issues. So, for example, the UK has funded us to do inclusive growth and the most exciting things happening there We're about to announce a big partnership with another government on refugees and migration. 
So partners working with us. But do you want to evolve into a fully commercial organization? Yeah, we're, I mean, we're a for-profit company. We're becoming a B Corp. So mission is very core to what we're doing. But the scale of our ambition is huge. We want any public servant anywhere in the world. And there are around 25 to 30 million civil servants. There are around 200 million people employed by the public sector globally to be able to find the best ideas. And doing that at scale requires a sustainable business model and a business that allows you to hire the best technologists. And one of the things actually that drew me to the space is that government is, other than healthcare and education, pretty unusual in the more successful you get as a business serving government, in theory, the more impact you can have in the world. Is it all in English? It's all in English at the moment, although some of our material has been translated. I think we've now been translated into five different languages on an ad hoc basis, but we will be introducing new languages soon. All right, we must end it there. But thank you very much, Robin, for a fascinating talk. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're taking a break for a few weeks, but we'll be back later this summer with more fascinating insights from scientists, entrepreneurs and academics on the digital landscape of the 21st century. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, then please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Please subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast app, and if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.